he heard the ancient helmsman chant a song so wild and clear that the sailing seabird slowly poised upon the mast to hear till his soul was full of longing and he cried with impulse strong helmsman for the love of heaven teach me to that wondrous song wouldst thou so the helmsman answered learn the secret of the sea only those who brave its dangers comprehend its mystery well what do you think folks who wants to have me out to your next poetry reading uh, hopefully i did some some amount of justice to uh to that little it's just an excerpt it's not the it's not the whole thing um I thought about reading the whole thing, and then I thought about how many of you would change the channel before I got done. Now, I know that we have a lot of, um, let's see, what's the right word? Industry, industry nerds that listen to this show. Uh, but, whoa, I'm just knocking, knocking shit on the floor. Okay, uh, it's all fine, folks. It's all fine. It's all part of the show. What was I saying? Oh yeah, we got industry nerds that uh, that listen to this show, but I gotta believe we got some some literature fans out there as well. Somebody must recognize, must recognize, at least maybe perhaps recognize the style of of the great Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Um, and I, you know, this is a this is a complete tangent, but I always thought I remember learning about Longfellow when I was in school, you know, as a youngster back in olden times. And I just couldn't, I just kept thinking about this poor guy with the middle name of Wadsworth <laughs> and all the jokes, you know, in junior high that that, I mean, you know, did you get your Wadsworth? Like, I don't even know what that, I don't even know what that means, but we would laugh about it. I'm laughing about it now. Why? Because junior high humor never stops being funny. Uh, so, uh, you know, Hank Longfellow. I think if I were if I were him, I would have just gone by Hank. Hank, um, Hank Long. But you see, even Longfellow <laughs> is probably not a great last name to have when you're in junior high. Okay, moving right along. Um, it was from a poem that he wrote uh, entitled "The Secret of the Sea." The secret of the sea. Now, uh, it's not going to be given that we're in the you know. The, the, Given that we we talk about the, the oil and gas industry here and 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 the sea, the oceans, the water, you know, factors into the story. So it's not gonna, it's not a, uh, it's probably not a big leap for you to figure out how I'm gonna tie this in uh, to what comes next. But first, but first, I gotta share something. Um, there's an article, and I I did it. So for those of you who follow me on LinkedIn, um, I I did a LinkedIn post on this. I don't know. I think it was yesterday, or the day before, or something like that. I actually, uh, let's see, it's a, it's an article in, where is it? Where is it? It's an article. I have so many tabs open. I cannot find the one I'm looking for. Okay. Oil price. Well, one of my favorite, uh, oil price writers, actually one of my favorite industry writers, and her name is Irina Slav. I'm sure you've seen her writing, uh, on oil price before. And, uh, it's always very good, very balanced, uh, very sort of thoughtful and well-informed. And, uh, and she's got this piece, this recent article here, and the title is the headline is net zero goals won't slow down oil exploration. Net zero goals will not slow down oil exploration. And the rest of the article is about um, the uh, 
the recovery that we're, well, the unsurprising recovery that we are seeing uh, in exploration, which, you know, was out of favor for a while and then it started coming back a little bit and uh, now it's coming back uh, a lot. And, uh, and, and she's, uh, so Irina is very good. She doesn't, um, she doesn't quite lay into the, uh, the sarcasm the way that I would uh, like, you know, looking back to 2015, if, we, you know, in 2016, like, if we could have only seen this coming, if we could have only seen the under, you know, we talked about it at the time, underinvestment in exploration is going to cause us uh, trouble down the road. Come back to bite us in the ass, as we, as we like to say. And, uh, and, and it's kind of doing that. Um, but it, it seems like maybe we're, we're not too far behind the curve. And, and fortunately, and we talked about this on some recent episodes where some of the big operators and well, not just the big ones, but operators of all sizes, uh, are, are saying, Ooh, you know, energy security and that whole bit. I don't, I'm not going to beat that drum uh, today because we have a couple of times on other things. And I want to get back to this whole, uh, mysteries of the deep, uh, you know, the, uh, the thing that I opened with. However, before we get onto the main thing, I do want to point out a, a, just a few things in Irina's article here, and I, I recommend you go read it. Uh, you can find it in Oil Price. It was published on uh, August 19th, Net Zero Goals. Uh, you'll find it. It's, it's short. It's concise. It's her usual uh, uh, well-done style. Now, but there's a few things in here that are going to sound familiar to you if you listen to this show regularly, because they're things... That I think I've said, and I, I don't. I don't mean to say that like I said it first. Uh, I just really, I just kind of want to point out that I'm just not making this shit up in my head because I want to have a good podcast. That this these perspectives are shared around the industry. Now, um, she starts out by talking about um, uh, underinvestment in oil and gas production over the last several years and the impact that that's had. And she's got some Woodmac research in here about. Um, uh, uh, how, you know, we're, we're spending is headed and it's definitely on, on, it's, it's def, def, definitely ramping up. Um, and she's got some, st- some comments in here about industry executives who have been kind of sounding the alarm, like, Hey guys, we need to invest in new exploration. Uh, and then she talks about energy transition and how this, it's kind of an odd dynamic between, between, uh, you know, everybody doubling down on energy transition, but also we got, we're ramping up this, uh, this, uh, you know, uh, new going out and finding even more new uh, hydrocarbons. The evil empire is continuing to expand. And uh, however, however, there's a perspective here that says, uh, but, but companies are now going, going to be, as they evaluate new assets, uh, opportunities. They're going to be high grading their portfolio as they always have. But now a new factor in the high grading is, can we develop this, uh, according to, can we, can we meet the new, um, uh, expectations or, or regular, whether it's regulated or whether it's just kind of a, like a, an expectation, like a moral, uh, thing, uh, can we develop these things, uh, with meeting the, the emissions profiles and, and, you know, in a, in a clean way, which it turns out, uh, we have those capabilities, as I've said, and, uh, she, she has a, she's got a quote in here from uh, some some group that was uh you know complaining about all of this um 
And they said that, and just like I said, just like I, I think it was last week, was it last week when I said, when I said, well, we can do all this carbon capture and sequestration and storage and, and but that, it, direct air capture, but that's not good enough for these people because they say, because they say that, uh, um, that just keeps the the evil empire in business, and so they're they're really incensed now that there's new government money through the Inflation Reduction Act that's pouring into those projects, and they're going, no, 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 that's the wrong thing. Uh, so so she she elaborates. She she doesn't elaborate it. She's she's a little bit more straightforward than I am. She doesn't she doesn't she doesn't add in all the color commentary. Um, and, uh, and then she moves on to say, but you know, we're, everybody's realizing that energy security is, is, uh, well, it's not that everybody thought it was unimportant, but everybody's suddenly realizing, remembering, not realizing, remembering how important it is. Uh, in fact, she says right here, uh, you know, we're talking about the gas squeeze in Europe last year, pushed to the prices into the stratosphere, and every, it was kind of like an oh shit moment. Oh, like, oh yeah, this this can happen. Like, all of a sudden, we, we don't have enough to heat our homes, and it's a big problem, and it costs a lot of money. And uh, and so there was some 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 uh, some realizations that uh, of, of the facts of life in this particular case. And she says, the transition advocates we're not the only ones reminded of that fact of life that, you know, energy security is, is uh, the importance of it. It's not to be taken for granted, I guess is what I should say. Uh, not, so the transition advocates were not the only ones reminded of that, uh, but the oil and gas industry itself may have temporarily forgotten and got a wake-up call last year. So now spending is on the rise, uh, even as the industry is trying to achieve, achieve transition goals. So it all comes together. And, uh, and I feel like, you know, I, this, is, this is a little bit of what I've been preaching. So, Irina, it's nice to see you pointing out some of the same things. And what, what got me to think about offshore, when I read uh, Irina's article yesterday or the day before, whatever it was, what got me thinking was, you know, so anytime you start talking about exploration, uh, of course I, I start thinking about offshore. Um, and, uh, and when you start talking about bringing a lot more money back into exploration budgets, then certainly a lot of that is going to be offshore. So it got me thinking about offshore and, uh, and, and I did, I thought, you know, who, like, who was the first person or who were the first people probably to uh to say you know what i bet we could just what we're doing over here on the, on the ground i bet we could do it out there in the water and find even more um because because there has to be a story right i mean there's got there's got to be a story and there is now it all started uh let's see here i, I have i have a whole assortment of things and i'm going to try to i'm going to try to put together into a cohesive story now that because it's fascinating it, and here's the problem there's so many fascinating things about this that uh it'd be very difficult for me to cover it in the next 18 to 20 minutes so i'm just going to give you the highlights all right here we go 1896 now before i tell you what happened in 1896 let's put it in uh historical context if you've been following along faithfully then you know that that is uh that is after the drake well which was in 1859, um, so some 
20, what is that? 27 years after the Drake. Well, but before, before Spindletop, which was in 1901. So I, I guess my point there is it's, it's, it's kind of right in there. You know, it's not, I mean, from, from, from the Drake well in 1859, 27 years later, 1896, and I'm about to tell you about, you know, going offshore. Um, it's not a long time. I mean, progress was being made. I, I've lived in my, I've lived in my house for almost 27 years. And so in that amount of time, they went from like drilling the first, uh, like commercial well of any sort to <laughs> let's let's go see if we can do this in the water and here's what happened in 1896 there was an oil field called summerland summerland uh was in santa barbara county california this is back when california was you know i guess a lot friendlier uh, to the oil and gas business among other things probably and uh summerland was uh there was a lot there was I, I, evidently there was a lot of oil being found and produced in the summerland uh summerland field and and the and it was very close to the water so let's see here let me try to get my details together now uh so the field was it was near the water and people are um and 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 they're poking a lot of holes in the ground and and producing oil and there was this one guy who, you know, evidently he was, well, while all the commotion was going on and, you know, there's a gusher over here and a gusher over there, this guy, he's looking out at the water and, uh, and he's thinking, I bet there's more out there in the water. And now he had, he had reasons for doing that. He had, he had reasons because he noticed that, uh, by the way, his name is Henry L. Williams, Henry L. Williams. And he noticed that the wells that were closer to the water were producing more than the wells that were further from the water. So it doesn't take Sherlock Holmes to come on the scene and deduce that uh, there's probably more over that way. And Henry said, we need to go out there in the water. Now, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure I'm sure Henry's friends were standing around him at the whatever the local uh, tavern was in Summerland. And they're like, Henry, son, you need to lay off that hooch because we ain't got no way of going out there in the water and drilling for oil. I mean, hell, we're still trying to get better at doing it over here on the, on the land. And uh, but Henry was not uh, he was not going to be dissuaded. And so he did find a few friends uh, to help him out that, uh, that didn't think he was crazy, obviously, and who had skills. And they built a three they built a they built a pier 300 feet out into the Pacific. So not very far, 300 feet. Uh, but it's a pier uh, 300 feet. That's a that's uh, a, a hundred yards. So that's it's an American football field. Uh, I regret to say that I don't, I don't know actually what the official size of a soccer field is, but anyway, uh, 300 feet out there, they build a pier and guess what they mounted on it? The cable tool rig. Yes. Uh, now rotary drilling had, had, had come into play at this time, I believe. Um, but, uh, I guess Henry decided to go with the tried and true. They took a cable tool rig out, mounted it on, on the pier. And by 1897, yes, ladies and gentlemen, just one year later, or perhaps less, the first, what was, what was the, what was it? The first, the first offshore well was producing oil. Yes. Technically, uh, strictly speaking, it's an offshore well. It's 300 feet into the water and it was producing oil. And guess what? 
Suddenly, 22 other companies are joining in the boom. And they constructed. So now I made up the part about how they said, like, Henry, you're crazy. But you know, they must have, right? Like, somebody must have looked at him and said, what in the hell are you talking about? Uh, but when it worked, uh, they said, well, shit, we want to, we got to get in on that action. And uh, pretty soon, uh, they can like before long, they constructed 22 companies constructed, uh, it's like 14 more peers, you know, and there was hundreds of wells, like, like, like 400 wells, uh, all, all like in the next five years. Uh, so lots of activity there in the Summerland offshore field. And here's, here's the amazing thing is that this thing produced for 25 years and uh, was actually a, a major factor in uh, California's, uh, you know, the growth of California's economy at that time, at the turn of the century. 25 years. This son of a bitch is out there. Just because Henry said, guys, there's more oil over here closer to the beach. We need to go that way. And so that's how, so, you know, and I realize it's a little bit anticlimactic because when you think about, oh, what was the first offshore? Well, you probably weren't thinking that I was going to say it was basically on a fishing pier, 300 feet out into the water, but it was. And that is, and that's how it started. Now, let's see, what else can I tell you about? Um, uh, so at that, you know, so, so from that point forward, there was a lot of excitement about, about offshore, because of course, somebody got to thinking about Texas and said, you know, thinking about salt, uh, salt domes, remember Spindletop was a salt dome and the guys that were working on that, um, at the time, you know, uh, said now, of course the, uh, the 1896, 1897 Henry Williams, uh, fishing pier well was 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 before Spindletop. That was in 1901. But the, in that five years that that came after that, that ensued, uh, you know that takes you into that takes you to what to 1902. So between 1897 and 1902, there's all this activity building wells out in the water off the coast of California, Santa Barbara County. And so uh, what I guess is that you know word traveled over to the to Texas and uh, the Spindletop guys had just recently uh, figured out that uh, thanks to uh, what was his name the that was the uh, that was the episode I did about the the first the first uh, geologist guy and he, the guy who said look you know apart from the what do you call those things when it when it, the earth bends up the anticlines uh, you know like those are fine but the real money is under the salt domes. And so they started to put it all together and the guys in California found more oil as they went out into the water. And so in Texas, they said, you know, these salt domes, as many salt domes as there are here on the Gulf coast, there's probably even more out there in the Gulf. And they were right. And we are still exploring and producing as, as, as everybody knows, we're, we're, we're finding all kinds of new and interesting ways to, uh, uh, to develop uh, assets under those salt domes nowadays. And that's a whole nother, that's a, that's a whole interesting story for another day. But following the timeline of, of offshore development, um, so there's a few different things that happened following, following this, um, 
all this uh, fun that they had out in California. And the timelines are a little, a little, you know, sometimes records weren't always kept as well as they could have been. And so the t- like what exactly happened when and who was first and whatnot is a little bit fuzzy. And, you know, there are some like, like, for example, there are some records of things that happened in Ohio lakes uh, w- with wells that were drilled that were like submerged wells in Ohio lakes. And that was even like 20 years earlier. And so, it, you know, it's 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 uh, it would take a little bit of work to try to piece together a perfect timeline. Uh, but that's not the point. The point is uh, the ingenuity the determination, the solving of hard problems. Um, and so there's a few things I want to, uh, I want to highlight. One is, uh, this is pretty well known, the Caddo Lake Wells in Louisiana. Uh, this was the first, um, so while we can call, uh, we can call Summerlands in California, uh, offshore cause it was <laughs> in the water. Uh, the first time that we saw people, uh, uh, drilling, you know, where they're not like connected to the land by something that that's generally considered to be, uh, the Caddo Lake Wells. And let's see, I got a little bit on that here. Um, oh yeah. 1911, 1911 Gulf refining company. Uh, they said, forget about peers. We need, we don't need no stinking peers. Uh, they went out into Caddo Lake in Louisiana with a fleet of tugboats and barges and, <laughs> you know, like things like, like floating pile drivers and, and, um, and, and that was, you know, I think that was the first, uh, time to, you know, technically offshore. I mean, it's the lake, but it's, it's out in the water and they weren't connected, you know, with a pier, they actually just float, took the fleet out there and, um, and let's see, what, what do I got? Oh yeah, yeah. The well came in at 450 barrels per day. Not bad, not bad. 450 barrels per day. That first, uh, the first well that they did, you know, with the tugboats and the barges and the floating, you know, whatever the apparatus was. Um, and so uh, when that first well came in at 450 uh, barrels a day, the the guys over at Gulf, they're like, yeah, we need more. We need more of that. So, so they just started building. Uh, platforms like you know like, like like checkerboard like like platforms like every five six hundred feet like another platform another platform another platform and, you know kind of across an entire 10 acre lake uh so um that had to be i mean it, it's an amazing feat and uh and it produced a great deal of oil i'm sure uh if you had if you had lakefront property <laughs> at Caddo Lake, you probably weren't like that excited about, uh, about the, about what happened to your view. But, uh, that was, that was that. Now, um, let's get back to, and then there were some other things. There were some other things along the way here too. Uh, if you look into this, I'm trying to just give you the highlights, but, but there, there starts to be some, trying, you know, various ways to go out into various bodies of water, but the big one, you know, the Gulf of Mexico. So coming back to that, cause they, cause you know, they figured they're like, shit, there's, you know, there's salt domes out there and, uh, and salt domes pay well. So, uh, but it's a whole different ball game. So you go out into a lake, uh, with some sort of floating, you know, uh, drilling stuff and, you know, you can, cause you got to keep the drill in one place. It can't be moving around. Um, it's gotta be stable 
Uh, otherwise, you're going to drill a, a very messy hole. You would know this. So if you ever, if you ever, uh, if you've ever done this, you ever done this trick where you have a, you know, you have your, your, your like your drill at home. You know, like the, like the drill that you use to drill stuff. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and you put the drill bit in and you're in a hurry and you don't realize that you didn't get it in there. It's kind of like a little bit cattywampus and you, um, you don't notice and you tighten up the chuck and then you pull the trigger and the drill goes like, wah, 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 wah. like, so you can't, it has to, <laughs> you can't do that when you're drilling for oil, um, or anything really. So the question of, well, if we go out into open seas, how do we, um, how are we going to keep the, because in the lake, you could anchor it, right? You could like, you could just drop an anchor. First of all, the water's not moving that much. And secondly, you can drop an anchor and you can keep everything or, or, or 12 anchors or whatever you need. And you keep everything still. Um, well, how in the hell are we going to do that out in the open sea in the Gulf of Mexico? Now, before I get to, so I'm going to, I'm going to, so we did obviously, cause we all know we got drill ships and they go out into, into open sea, but there's a, there's a few interesting things that happen along the way. And, uh, right around here is where our story comes to the Kerr McGee corporation. Now this company was started in, uh, I don't know, like in the 1920s, um, 20 something. And, uh, and it was, uh, you know, it's one of those companies that started like with these two guys and then that guy left and they brought this other guy on and the name changed a couple of times. So it wasn't Kermagee originally, it was something else. Um, but, but the fun started in 1946 after they'd been in business for, you know, whatever it is, 15, 20 years. In 1946, they hired this guy uh, whose name uh, was Dean Anderson McGee. That's how the McGee got into the Kerr McGee name. Dean Anderson McGee is from Oklahoma. In fact, you can, uh, in fact, you can, he, he, he died not that long ago. Well, 1989, 1989 feels like not that long ago to me. Um, perhaps, perhaps it's not the same for everyone. Uh, in fact, I found his, uh, his, his obituary here in the Oklahoman newspaper, the Oklahoman uh, published on September 16th, 1989. Oil pioneer Dean A. McGee dies at age 40, 45. <laughs> no, he was 85. I don't know. I don't know where 45 came from. Dies at age 85. And it's a very nice obit here. Uh, they talk about him being a, a pioneer oil man and a living legend in the petroleum industry in Oklahoma. He was quite, so if you, as I understand it, uh, there's a lot of things. I haven't spent a whole lot of time in Oklahoma. I've been to Oklahoma City, uh, a handful, you know, a handful of times, and 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 around a little bit more than that. But uh, I haven't spent a whole lot of time. But apparently, you can um, you can find his name on a lot of things. He he became a he became a uh, what do you call those people that give away money? Philanthropist. And uh, so besides building, you know, the company. Um, you know, you can find, you know, like downtown office buildings and parks and streets and, you know, all kinds of things that are named after, after him. Now, um, here in the Oklahoman, in the, uh, in his, in, in Dean McGee's obituary, there's a statement here that I, I have not been able to, um, uh, it, it kind of caught my attention and I haven't been able to kind of cross verify this anywhere, but but it must be true because you you wouldn't put anything that's not true in a, in a guy's obituary. I mean, I mean, come on. And what it says here is uh, that he was. Hold on, I got it right here. Yep, um, it was it was the Kerr McGee technology primarily attributed to 
to McGee himself, that developed the first offshore drilling rig and opened a vast new petroleum frontier. Now, this is where the story gets really interesting because uh, the best that I can tell, there are two different versions of who got there first. And, uh, and neither version seems to be of the story or neither story seems to be aware of the other story, <laughs> at least insofar as I can tell in the historical documents. Now, some of you, uh, so those of you, if there's anybody out there who is a, uh, like an industry historian, or maybe perhaps you were around for some of these happenings, because uh, I think there's still a few, uh, a few of those out there. Um, you can feel free to like help me out here, um, because because uh, I can't quite fit the stories together. There's one story about about Kermagee and and a uh, and a and a World War II surplus World War II barge that they stuck a rig on, and there's another story about a company called Global Marine, and a boat that they called Cus One. I, I think I mean it's capital. It's all capital letters C U S S One. So I'm going to call it Cus One. Uh, but in any case. Uh, I'm going to tell you both stories uh, because they're both interesting and it, and it kind of ends in either case, it ends with us figuring out how to stabilize a drill ship uh, out in, in the open seas. Now, uh, that said, I'm looking at my trusty timeometer here, and it says that uh, I'm at the point where you, you probably are going to stop listening if I keep going. So here's what we're going to do. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to do a part two on this one, folks. Uh, we're going to come back. Uh, so stay tuned because next week we will come back and I'll tell you the story of, of these two different uh, uh, firsts in the Gulf of Mexico and also a little bit about how we, uh, how we figured out how to stabilize a drill ship. And, and there's this, uh, there's this other thing that I want to, I want to get to finally, which is this project Mohole, which, uh, was a project that started in the early, sixties, uh, uh, to try to drill through the earth's crust into the mantle and, uh, and, and bring back a rock. I, you know, basically, while there was one group of yahoos who were over here trying to go to the moon and bring back a rock, these guys uh, uh, on Project Mohole, Mohole, <laughs> they, they wanted to do the same thing, except they wanted to go down and bring back a rock from there. Uh, it, it, so it's an interesting story. And, um, and even though Project Mohole uh, ended... Uh, you know, some years back, um, apparently the race to the, the race to the mantle is still ongoing. I need to do a little bit more homework on that one before I can tell that story, uh, you know, in a reasonable way. So we're going to come back. I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop and we're going to do a part two. I didn't plan it this way, folks, by the way, this is just, you're getting it. You're getting it. It's coming out my mouth as it occurs in my brain. We're going to come back, do a part two uh, next time and get into some of that. And so I will, uh, well, I guess to quote Marvin Berry of Marvin and the Starlighters, don't nobody go nowhere. Don't nobody go nowhere.